kind of weird. Like we're out in the middle of nowhere and I'm hearing all this stuff going on in the jungle and now this rumbling noise, what's going on? And it just kept getting louder and louder and louder to the point where I started thinking, man, is, it feels like there's a plane about to crash, like right near us, like what's going on? I was so confused. And then the ground started to shake a little bit and I was just going, oh man, I'm, I can't make heads or tails of this. Hello and welcome to Hurdles. This episode is part three of an extreme sport mini-series where I have a selection of experienced athletes that are going to shine the light on their extreme sport. Hurdles discusses the physical, mental and emotional hurdles that successful people need to overcome. I shall question and delve into their mindset which allowed them to achieve, allowing you, the listener, to relate. On today's episode, we are joined by Richie Lovett. Richie was a professional surfer and has been since the age of 18. Growing up in Sydney near the water, Richie only had one purpose in life, which was to surf. Along his journey, he completed his ultimate goal by winning the 2003 Trestles World Championship. However, along his journey to greatness, Rich faced a lot of adversity. He has survived a shark attack. He has survived a tsunami that killed hundreds and he was forced to retire when doctors found a huge tumour in his hip, resulting in half of his femur and half of his hip being removed. Doctors said he would be lucky to walk again, let alone surf, and surf he did. I can't wait for you guys to hear Rich's story. Don't forget to follow Hurdles on at Hurdles Podcast on all social media, and let's hop straight into it. I prefer to be busy and things happening in life rather than sitting around looking for things to do, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, definitely. That's that elite mindset that I'm sure we'll get onto. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, no, I'm, um, I turned 50 this year, so plenty going on, you know, family, friends, work. Um, it's that stage in life when, uh, you know, I guess uh, it's time to leave a mark or at least feel satisfied with what you're doing with your life and um yeah that's that's the focus for for 2022 well if you're not satisfied with life so far then i doubt many are <laughs> right um satisfied with life no not yet um you know i feel like i feel like there's a lot of life to live yet for so what are you looking to achieve then in uh in your years um Mate, if you'd asked me this question 20 or 30 years ago, uh, you know, I would have said to be at the top of pro surfing, to win the world title, to be the best. So, you know, I, I achieved a lot of what I wanted to achieve. Um, and uh, I got a lot of satisfaction out of hitting a lot of my goals. You know, as I was a kid, I... I set myself goals to, to become a, a professional surfer and I hit that and I did, you know, I, I, I had a, a long and, and relatively successful career on the world tour um, that sort of spanned about 15 years. Uh, and then I, and then, uh, you know, I was faced with um, some pretty real uh, challenges, some big challenges in life. And then that, I guess, took my life on a completely different journey um, and I started what I guess is the, the other half of, of my life, which has been, you know, outside of pro surfing and, and developing a career and having a family and, 
and uh, and and I guess trying to settle into a normal existence, you know, because that's that's sort of the daily the daily thing for everyone is to just live and and achieve their goals and and have satisfaction in life. So um, I guess what I'm trying to achieve now is is you know happiness and satisfaction through a through a life balance still still hitting goals whether they're work related or family related or just trying to be a, a bloody good dad and and give my kids enough time and um you know that, that they're the sort of things that i'm looking to achieve now have you always had that selfless attitude yeah um i don't think it was a i don't think it was instilled in me um or it may have been instilled in me but i wasn't activating it uh, when I was on the tour, you know, that's a, looking back now, it's a really selfish existence being a professional athlete. And, you know, and, and, you know, I look back and I, I don't have, I don't have any regrets for the way I, I lived my life and how dedicated I was to it and how selfish I was. I think you have to be that way to, to be the best in the world. You know, you look at the greats, you look at the Tiger Woods and, you know, for our sport, it's Kelly Slater and the sacrifices that, you have to make in order to be the best you know that that's what your choice is you choose to do that you go you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna be selfish i'm gonna focus on me because i have to if i want to get to that to the pinnacle of whatever sport it is that you choose so uh it wasn't until i mean of course you know traveling the world being independent having to deal with different cultures and things like that you you do learn um a certain level of openness and acceptance because different things happen as it's, it's not regular it's not repetitive there's always unique things happening around you so there is an adaptability that you that you uh that you grow into and that you learn but certainly for me um you know in 2000 end of 2005 was when i started to uh become aware of the the sort of health issue that i had and um you know, I started to feel pain in my hip and, you know, the long story short is I was diagnosed with a really rare form of bone cancer. And it was, it came, you know, I wouldn't say it was the end of my career. It was probably just after say the halfway mark of my career. Uh, you know, I still, I still felt like I had a, a lot to give and a lot to do uh, in my sport, but, you know, all that came to a grinding halt. I had to, um accept a lot of help from people you know typically i was very independent i've got this I've got this sorted i can handle it you know I'd, I'd be the one trying to do everything for everyone else and i had to have the tables turned on you know things can get taken away from you and then you start to realize you know that there that, that things can affect you you feel bulletproof when you're young and all of a sudden something cuts you down so it's like whoa man hang on a minute i'm kind of vulnerable and that vulnerability can be really scary I had to find a way to turn that into a positive and that was a bit of a journey. So I have developed, uh, I, I have developed an ability to always look on the bright side of life, to look at life with a glass half full mentality. And that's how I always think about it. I always go, there's always someone worse off. You know, there's always someone doing it tougher. There's always someone in a worse situation than me. Be thankful for what you can do. Be thankful for what you do have. And, if you remind yourself that every day, then you're probably going to go through life okay. That's just incredible that you can be thrown with so much adversity, but 
you're still thinking, you know what, it could be so much worse and, and it could. We see what's happening at, in Ukraine at the minute and we've just got to be thankful for what we have all the time. It's so true, you know, we're in, um, you know, you look at what's happening, we've got war on the other side of the world at the moment and, you know, in our, in our own backyard here in Australia, we've just had these incredible floods that, that basically wiped out, you know, part of Queensland state and the top of New South Wales state. Thousands and thousands of people, their homes, everything they own were washed away. You know, it's the, they were calling it a one in, you know, 500 year storm. And we got it, basically the whole East coast of Australia was affected by this gnarly, this gnarly uh, rain pattern that happened for like a month. And, you know, those people have lost everything. So, there's always something relative to compare it to. That's incredible. You can tell already that your your mental toughness is just incredible, that when you had to face that vulnerability and accept the help, you managed to adapt. And that's being able to accept the fact that you're vulnerable is, is halfway there in, in mental toughness. And the fact that you always have that gratitude that things could be so much worse. I mean, I'm not surprised that you achieved what you did with that mindset. Look, I the funny thing is, Ollie is that I don't I don't enjoy being vulnerable. No, I don't think many people do, you know, um, because it's scary, you know, it, it sort of opens us up and we can look at our flaws and vulnerability and all these things that go along with it. You know, it's you have to look in the mirror pretty hard. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer to this question here because I ask this to all my guests and you get all sorts of definitions. But for Richie Lovett, what is greatness in your eyes? Uh, what is greatness? Um, again, I come back to the past and I go, if you had asked me this question 20 years ago, my answer would have been totally different. You know, it, it would have been, it would have been based around being great, you know, achieving great accolades and achieving, you know, great performances and things like that. Um, but my definition of greatness now is, is more so around um, living up to your potential and acknowledging your potential. And for me, it's inspiring others through reaching your potential. Like I know, I know that I can go down to my local beach and I know I've got so much support within kind of the surfing community and the surfing fraternity around the world. And, I've had so many people reach out to me and go, hey, listen, I've, I've drawn on what you've been through and how you've been able to get through it. I've drawn so much inspiration in that. So for me, greatness is, is reaching my potential and inspiring other people through that potential because that's I'm handing on some sort of positivity to someone else. So for me, that feels great. And I feel like that is, is probably the definition of greatness for me. And if I can continue to do that, and if I continue to inspire people, which in any way it may be, you know, um, whether it's some guy that sees me because I've had my hip done twice and, you know, whatever, and he still sees me out there surfing and goes, ah, oh, and I'm about to have my hip done or I've got to have a hip operation or I've recovered from cancer and I can still do the things I want to do, you know, that's, that that to me is is kind of touching on greatness so um that's where i'm at i completely agree in fact i think you're smashing greatness there and it's funny that it 
correlates to your mindset that your mindset was the selfishness and I need to achieve this these are my goals I need to become world champion I need to get this score but as your mindset changed to you know what I need to leave a legacy here it's not just about me it's about the rest of the world and what I can do to the rest of the world then that's what your definition of greatness did it changed to you know what I'll be great if I leave a legacy I'll be great if I motivate others and I think that mental maturity is, is brilliant yeah yeah thanks and I, I think it I think it comes along with age as well I think as you mature and you get older you start your values start to shift a little bit yeah and we'll get on to the, the struggles you had later with the, the cancer and whatnot but in a small way are you sort of grateful for it happening because obviously going through it must be horrendous and I can't imagine it but you've successfully come out the other side and you're able to inspire others and you've also come out with this mindset that you know what the little things don't really matter it's always about the bigger picture in a, in a small way are you grateful um yeah I think so for sure um you know you can't it's it's really hard to predetermine the course of your life it's life's just unpredictable and I and you know I can really vouch for that because every time I think, ah, oh, we got a little clear airspace here, you know, we're cruising along at 33,000 feet and everything's going to be fine. The next thing will come along and, and, you know, you just, you just get hit with these things, man. And you just got to keep picking yourself up. So, um, you know, I guess I am thankful for all the education that I've had through it, um, through learning about myself. Definitely. So if we take it back to your your early days before you were, before you had this mindset, before you were the Richie lover that everyone knows, you grew up in Sydney and your parents had the marina and you were a natural around water. How did you feel when you hit your first wave? Uh, it was what I can only imagine is, is like getting a, a drug hit for the first time. You know, it's, it was for me, I'd, my brother and I, we grew up around the ocean. We grew up around the water and boats and sailing. And, you know, it was, it was only natural that we were going to find our way to the beach. My brother and I used to go and stay with them on weekends and, and on occasions. And, and uh, my grandfather, who was, did a lot of body surfing, he took us down one day and he had one of these big surfboards and he kind of paddled us out, pushed me onto a wave. And I, and I remember it. I can recall it now. Um, you know, I just... It was a tiny little wave, but it was crystal blue and just peeling along this little sandbar. And I, I jumped up and the sensations that I felt when I first rode this wave was just like nothing I'd ever felt before. You know, it was different to sailing and it was just different to riding a bike and it was different to kicking a ball around. It was, it was something that, um, uh, it sounds kind of weird, but it, it was spiritual in a way, you know, there was some sort of, connectedness that I felt even at a young age to the water and um you know from that ride on it was just like can you do that again can you push me on another wave and that was like that just started everything for me by the time I was in my teens I was I was starting to think about competing and judging myself against other people and I was scared to do that but it was my mom who started saying you know you, you should start competing you know it's you look like you really want to do this. And I had, you know, older guys down the beach start to kind of take notice and go, Hey, you should start, 
should start testing yourself in a competition. And then, you know, I, I took the leap of faith one day and went in a, went in a competition. I won my, the first ever competition I went in. All of a sudden I had this feeling of surfing mixed with feeling of winning. And the combination was quite remarkable. And it was something that I just, uh, from that day on, I just, I wanted to chase that. And, and I chased it for years and years after. Yeah, once you've touched it once, winning and adrenaline and surfing, you can't leave it ever again. How old uh-huh. were you when you how old were you when you first hit that wave and, and you instantly knew that that's what you wanted to do with your life? Mate, I was I was probably only eight or nine years old. I was still quite young. So you left school and am I right in saying that your parents gave you twelve months to really give surfing a go, or else you had to find in quotation marks a real job? Yeah, that's so true. You know, um, look, I'd, I'd already started on the pathway and um, my parents had sent my brother and I to a private school, uh, private high school. And it was really strict and there was a lot of extra stuff to do. You know, there was cadets and extracurricular sport and all this other stuff that we had to do that was taken away from my surf time, which I didn't like. And um, my brother was a bit of a troublemaker. So he ended up leaving school and going to a different school and and then, uh, you know, I begged my parents, you know, I was like, can I just, I want to go where my brother's going because at that school, they had surfing as a sport. So I was like, oh, this is like a dream come true. So, um, you know, I went to that school, I, I conned my parents into it and they were down with it. So um, by that point, I was starting to compete in scholastic titles and regional events and things like that. And I was starting to do really well. So, you know, when it came around to kind of career day and, all the teachers were asking, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to be? And I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to be a pro surfer. And they would just be like, oh, yeah, okay. What else? What's your other, what's your backup plan? And I'd be like, no, I don't really have one. I, this is what I'm going to do. So, um, you know, when other kids, you know, through 10, you know, year 9, 10, even 11 and 12 grade, uh, other kids would go off and, do, and have parties and, you know, go out on the weekends and go to clubs and stuff like that. And, I really didn't do too much of that. You know, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be home on a Friday night, bed early, getting up ready because I knew I just wanted to surf all weekend or I had, a, I had some sort of an event on that I wanted to do. And, you know, I guess in a way it comes back to your question of sacrifice. You sort of sacrifice all those childhood kind of connections um, and all those childhood experiences for something else but I was willing to it, it didn't feel like a sacrifice to me because at the time that's what I wanted to do and I was I was kind of pursuing that dream and to me it wasn't a sacrifice at all so um the day school finished I booked a ticket I started looking at the events I could do in you know around the world and my parents were like okay you know you, you can give this a good crack but if you don't make an impact or you know don't start making it 12 months you know you're gonna to have to start thinking about a real job and 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 whatever uh it was a year or two after i left school i did the uh, i did the australian championship circuit and uh i ended up winning that the whole the, the entire title so i i become i became the australian champion and and that's when things started to really get rolling from there yeah i, I speak to so many people and and they all say that there's no such thing as sacrifice if it's what you want to do, if it's what you love and it's what you have to do. One thing I have learned is that nothing worthwhile comes easy. Um, 
you have to work hard at it to your point you know you have to put in the time you have to put in the effort you have to you, you have to make sacrifices in terms of your commitment you have to commit to things and and that's not just sport that's with anything that's with relationships that's with you know getting a good mark in an exam that's with becoming a better driver whatever it is you know you got to put time into it um because yeah i i've learned nothing nothing gets handed to you really you've got it you've got to do the yards if you want the returns certainly and you need that inner motivation to to achieve that because you can't just half-ass these things you have to go completely headfirst into it and being a surfer as well you must be so driven you can't miss a day you can't miss a training session especially if you're on the world tour so what was your inner why what made you train every day what made you keep going in your in your uh moments of adversity that you've had in your life yeah i think like through my surfing career the the why and the motivation was was driven by wanting to achieve the ultimate goal was wanting to not let myself down was wanting to you know realize the commitment that i'd made so many years ago and that that's why i got up in the morning and trained and that's why i did all the trips and the film stuff and whatever all the things that kind of encapsulate becoming a professional athlete or professional surfer in my case um the motivation now is different um the motivation now comes from just wanting to find enjoyment and stay healthy and stay fit i went from being one of the most elite surfers in the world and one of the best surfers in the world to someone who was going to be lucky to surf again you know and i had to i had to basically go back and learn to surf all over again so once it was it was close to a year after the first hip operation that i had and it was a major hip operation um you know i'd done a lot of rehab and uh i felt i felt ready to ride a wave again and so when the time came i you know got this big huge longboard and on this tiny little wave probably similar to the size of the wave that i first took off on when i was eight years old and i and i and i just gingerly stood up and just held my stance and rode this wave tiny little wave to the shore and the feeling that i had just from doing that was so amazing and it would it sort of compared with you know riding 20 foot waves of pipeline or some of the biggest best waves that i've ever had in my life just because i had achieved so much to get back to that point and ride a surfboard again and ride a wave again i was going to ask uh, you sorry just to quickly interrupt i was going to ask you was that i was going to ask before you said that sorry that was that emotion that consumed you frustration the fact that you can't do what you could do but the fact that you just said the overriding feeling you got was just amazing that's just an incredible outlook that you go back to that you have to be glass half full because had i been or had any had most people been winning world titles and being on the world tour and then they're just riding small waves i think everyone would naturally be angry frustrated why me but you've just gone you know what i've come through so much to be able to ride this wave and you're once again it goes back to the gratitude that you've got 
Yeah, look, that's not to say that, that there weren't moments of why me and there weren't moments of frustration. And, and to be honest with you, the frustration came as I got stronger and as I got better and as things developed and I was like, okay, maybe I can, maybe I can get back to a point where I can compete again and maybe I can do this. And I, I actually, that, um, the determination kicked in again and I wanted to see how far I could, I could take it. And, and I went a long way, man. I went, I pushed it to the point where I was competing again and I did compete at an amateur level and I got all the way back to competing in a pro event down at Manly. And something happened after I got back and this was, this was several years after the, after the, the first wave when I went back. Um, Cause my ego kicked in again and I went, you know what? I, I kind of want to get back there. I want to prove to myself and everyone else that I can be this amazing surfer again, even though, you know, I've had all this stuff under my body and, and I got back there and, um, you know, it felt good. I, I'm not going to lie. It felt good, you know, and, and it, there were, there were times of, of frustration where I kind of went, you know, damn this, you know, like if, this hadn't happened, I might have gotten to this place on the world tour. I might have won some more events and why me and, and stuff like that. But in those moments, I, I've somehow, somehow kind of engineered a way for my thinking to go back to that. Do you know what? It's, I'm just thankful. And within that 12 years, I got back to the point where I was surfing really well again and probably doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, because the the prosthetic and it's a big prosthetic it's you know they basically they basically took my femur from halfway up took all the bone out and replaced it with this you know huge sort of proximal femur prosthetic that that um when you look at it in the x-ray it, i kind of look like a like robocop so um <laughs> And of course, now I've got kids, you know, so I also want to be fit and I want to be healthy for them. Yeah, it must be tough to discipline yourself when you know what you're capable of. Maybe but... even now, even now I go for surfs now and I go, oh, geez, I'd love to just absolutely tear the top off that wave. Maybe you'll have to rip the top off it a couple of times in front of your kids just to show off that <laughs> every now and again. I'm guilty of it. I've done it a couple of times. So, um, I think they know they're, they're, they're pretty proud of their dad. Yeah, I would be too. So I want to talk about uh, Hawaii. So it took you two years to qualify for the world championships and you did it in the most spectacular style. Can you talk us through it, please? Yeah, mate. Um, so I, I kind of achieved everything there was to achieve in Australia. I won everything. And then it was time to go on the on the world tour. So the way the the way the world tour was structured back then, there was what's called the qualifying series. And then if you finished at a certain level on the qualifying series, you went on to the championship tour. And that's where the that's where the big kind of payday comes in. And that's that's the tour that crowns the world champion. So I went on uh, I went on the qualifying series for a couple of years, and I had sort of mixed results. I guess I was. Um, really inconsistent with with uh with my with my competition and I guess my focus waned a little bit maybe the fact that I was kind of traveling around and I was living the life of a pro surfer sort of washed away the the goals a little bit 
um, and I kind of lost track of what I was doing. But um, it, it was on my second year on the qualifying series and I was traveling around with a couple of buddies and, and they'd done really well. And they'd already done enough. They'd already accumulated enough points to make it to the championship tour. Um, Hawaii is the final leg of the tour and Hawaii is seen as um, the proving ground of a surfer. And, um, and that's because the waves are so big and powerful. And it, um, it, it generally takes a long time before you get comfortable surfing in Hawaii. So, um, you know, I basically the year had sort of unwound and I was in a position where I, I still had a shot of making the championship tour, but I basically had to win this final event in Hawaii. And in this event, it's not just the qualifying guys in it. You get all the major championship guys in the event as well. So it's doubly hard. You're not only, you're not only trying to do your best in Hawaii, you've, you're up against all the world's best. So, um, and I just, I went into that event and um, something happened. My mind shift kind of changed I put everything, I quietened everything that was going on around me. I packed away everything. And all I focused on at that one particular moment was getting through every single heat, surfing every single wave I could to the best of my ability. And I guess looking back now, that saying you were in the moment is, is the best way I can describe what happened in that event. And I had a, had a good bunch of crew around me and they were saying, dude, you're going to win this event. You can do it. You can do it. And I came in as a total rookie. Like I was probably a thousand to one of winning the event. Um, the surf was also gigantic. It was so big. And um, so I, I took my focus off who I was competing against. And I was purely just focusing on what I had to do to survive these conditions and surf as best I could. And as, at that age, I was still kind of learning how to surf Hawaii. Um, but I, I had an affinity with this wave, the break where this competition was at, a place called Haleiwa, and it's this, this big right-hander, and it's got a ferocious rip that runs through it. But there was something about it that I just really enjoyed. I tapped into the energy of the place. And um, I got through the first couple of rounds, and then all of a sudden I was like, yeah, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm okay here. You know, I'm doing all right. I took sort of any expectations off my shoulders and I just kept thinking, I'm just gonna take this heat, every heat as it comes and just do my absolute best on every wave. And before that event, I'd shaved my head, you know, I just kind of stripped away everything. You know, I was a bit of a pretty boy at that stage. I'd, you wouldn't know it now, but I had kind of long blonde hair and I took a bit of pride in my appearance. And I just went, you know, I've got to get rid of all the distractions. So I shaved the head and I just wanted to get a bit angry and a bit, you know, focused on what I was doing. And uh, all of a sudden, I found my way into the quarterfinals. And I was like, man, I've beaten, along the way, I've beaten, you know, these kind of established veterans and, and guys that had big reps in Hawaii. And uh, I just kept getting through heats. And next, I was in the court, I was in the semis, got through the semi, I was in the final. And then I just remember thinking, hang on a minute, I've only got to catch three more waves here and I could win this event. And I paddled out there. I went further than everyone else out because I just felt so in tune with what was happening in the ocean that day. And I just picked off the first wave of the final and just 
I tore it to pieces and got a huge score. And I was just like, man, I think I'm, I think I'm going to do it. And it was that point I started to afford myself the luxury of thinking that I could maybe win this, but I didn't want to get too far ahead of myself. Cause I knew I'd like the three other guys that were in the final would were, were like championship to a surface. They were all like fully established pros. So I just kept my head down and man, two more waves. I just let, I did not let anything hold me back. Every time I hit the water, every time I paddle into a wave, I said to myself, you got nothing to lose. You got nothing to lose. And it was that little mantra that I had through that whole event. And I just surfed my brains out. I ended up winning that contest and making the world tour. And that was basically the start of my, my 10 year run on the world championship tour. And that was, uh, that kickstarted everything. What a way to introduce yourself. Richie Lovett has joined the party. <laughs> it was pretty special. And to do it in Hawaii too, because it's, you know, if you look at how many rookies have actually won in Hawaii, there's not that many. It's normally the, the season pros that, that, uh, that get the victories there. So I think it, everyone was surprised. You know, everyone was like, whoa, who is this kid? You know, like, how do you do that? <laughs> it proves the lesson of focus on yourself, do everything you can do in your power and everything else, everything else will fall into place. And that is all you can control. And if you do that at the best of your ability, then you might not know. You might, uh, you might qualify for the world tour. Exactly. I tell my son that too, because I, I, I feel like, well, I know that he feels a bit of pressure that he needs to be a good surfer or, a, you know, a, a hotshot surfer in the water just because of his dad. So, and that goes um, back to your definition of greatness, sorry, that it doesn't matter what your son does. As long as you do it to the best of your ability, everyone's got a purpose. If you give it 100%, you'll find that purpose. Yeah, and you'll be and you know you'll 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 be proud of yourself because you won't be like oh, I should have done a bit better there and that but as soon as you start doing that that's a that's a seed of negativity whereas if you do it to the best of your ability you're already the, the positives the glass is already filled up because you've done your best you know so you can walk away and go gave it everything credit to you. I read that you uh, you spoke to your mum and you said you used to always laugh and say, you know what, I think I might have used up my nine lives. <laughs> yeah. The first of the many uh, yeah. that, that uh, you told me about is uh, in New South Wales and uh, you had a little encounter with a shark, let's just say. Yeah, man, that was Nothing a scary there. one. Um, yeah, I've, I, I've seen a fair few sharks in my time, obviously, because I spend a lot of time in the water, but this one that I didn't see, and it was, I, I was pretty young at the time. It was kind of back at the early stages of my career. I was, uh, I was surfing at a place called Northwall Ballina. So Ballina's like the shark hotspot at the moment. There's been a number of attacks, a couple of fatal ones in the last few years up around that area. Um, so this one day I was, I was only surfing with a couple of mates. There was only a few of us out. And uh, I'd caught this wave way down the beach and I paddled back out beyond the break and I was, I was paddling back up to, to meet up with them. And as I was paddling back up, I felt this thing just come and bang, hit the underside of my board. And I just, I instantly thought, oh man, it's a dolphin, like a dolphin's run into me. And I, and I was like shocked and scared, you know, cause 
you get hit by a board when you're just paddling all of it you you realize something with a fair bit of force is is needed to kind of you know to sort of almost knock you off the board so i regained my balance and I, I sort of sat up on a board and i looked down and then there's this big kind of dark shadow just came out from under my board and it was had this sort of brown tinge to it and I just sort of went oh man here we go and uh as soon as I saw this thing I just thought oh man that's a bronze whaler and I it was a it was a decent sized shark it was probably eight feet long big wide girth on it and this thing was checking me out so what a shark typically does it'll always come from behind if it wants to attack you it will always position itself and then it will come in from behind. And that's why surfers generally get bitten on the leg or on the torso because the shark's coming up from behind. And uh, if you've ever seen that famous footage of Mick Fanning at, Jeff at Jeffrey's Bay when he gets hit by that great white, you'll see the shark come around, do a 90 degree angle and come at him from behind. And that's what they do, they're hunters. So this thing, it's obviously come up and it's had a, had a crack at me and for whatever reason, it's just missed or, you know, it was really having a, having a good look and it thankfully, uh, you know, I wasn't on the menu for, uh, for dinner that night, but man, it was a scary moment because I had to, I had to deal with that shark for a couple of minutes and the thing was circled around me a few times. And uh, one thing I had learned was that you never take your eye off the shark. You always try and, go head onto it because if you're face onto the shark, chances are they won't kind of come straight at you and attack. So I just kept my eyes on it. And then eventually it went down under the water and I just went, I gotta go. So I just put my head down and started paddling for the shore. And thankfully a little little wave popped up and I was able to get to the shore. And my buddies had, uh, one of my buddies who I was surfing with, he had gone in because he saw what happened and then him and I started screaming at the other guy, get in, get in, you know, because we didn't want to leave him out there by himself. So, um, yeah, that was a that was a scary moment. And, and again, it kind of comes back to that vulnerability. You know, you feel vulnerable in those moments. And, and um, you know, if that shark really wanted it, it probably could have got me. But, um, yeah, I lost one of my nine lives that day. <laughs> That's enough to put me off surfing from the outset. <laughs> Moving on to your second of nine lives. <laughs> in Indonesia, you, well, you've just had an incredible story and you've survived cancer, you've survived a shark attack and you have been in a tsunami. Yeah. What happened there? That's a weird one. That one, even when I look at it now written down, you know, I just go, did that really happen? But it, I can assure you, it did. You know, that was yeah. that was one of the most freakish experiences I've ever had in my life. So me and a bunch of teammates, we'd, we'd been in Bali and then we traveled out to this. It's a really remote surf camp. It's on the tip of a jungle. So it's, there's reef, there's a tiny little, there's a big lagoon, tiny little stretch of, of sand. And then there's jungle and they've cleared this jungle and made a surf camp. So you basically have to, you know, get on boats and, and in vans and get on ferries. It, it, it takes a whole day of travel just to get to this little remote surf camp. It was two in the morning and I was, um, 
the accommodations at this surf camp are basically a, a bamboo hut, you know, with kind of bamboo thatch roof, uh, ceiling and roof. And there's not much to it. And uh, they're on these little foundations on the, on the sand and scattered around the camp. So it was about two in the morning and I, I woke up and, um, you know, when you're camping and you're out in the wilderness, there's noises, things going on. And, you know, I woke up to the, these weird noises, like all these animals in the, in the jungle were just, you know, I could hear kind of monkeys screaming and I was going, man, is this normal? But it was so weird. And then I sat up in my hut and then all of a sudden I could hear this rumbling noise. I was going, wow, this is, this is kind of weird. Like we're out in the middle of nowhere and I'm hearing all this stuff going on in the jungle and now this rumbling noise, what's going on? And it just kept getting louder and louder and louder to the point where I started thinking, man, is, it feels like there's a plane about to crash, like right near us. Like what's going on? I was so confused. And then the ground started to shake a little bit. And I was just going, oh man, I'm, I can't make heads or tails of this. And then the next minute, this wall of water just picked up my heart, just surrounded, just engulfed us. And uh, I just felt the bamboo hut just disintegrate around me and I felt myself under this big wall of water and I guess if you've ever seen you know footage of a tsunami in Japan or wherever um, you know it's it's this wall of water that just moves and takes everything with it there's so much power in it and so uh, that's what happened to us there was an earthquake um, a bunch of miles just off the the Grudgigan town um, and in this bay where the camp was, this tsunami had just developed and just wiped out the whole area. So uh, we, got, we got taken kind of under this wall of water back into the jungle. And, um, you know, I guess being surfers, we had had experience with turbulent water. You know, you obviously get wiped out all day, every day. So um, I, the fact that we we're accustomed to it, we kind of went into a bit of a survival mode was, was probably life-saving for some of us. Um, but yeah, it was pretty horrific. This kind of wall of being under a wall of water and being kind of driven through dense jungle was, was pretty crazy and we were getting cut up and, um, you know, eventually the power of the wave sort of died out a little bit and we we're way back in there. And I just remember being up in the water, kind of up to my neck. I'd, managed to get up under you know up to get my head up above the water and uh it was just pitch black and it was just mayhem mayhem and confusion and uh and then the wave just you know all the water started slowly started to dissipate and then uh we kind of all started to meet up and find each other which took you know probably half an hour or so before we met up and found each other. And, you know, we didn't know, I had all the clothes on, clothes that I was sleeping in were all stripped off and it was, had cuts. I've been basically been shredded to pieces, you know? So um, it was, it was a really horrific moment. And, um, you know, it was, it was quite a strange few days after that because we were, we were completely cut off from everything. All the, all the fishing boats and all the transport boats in the whole area had all been washed up onto the land. And, you know, you've, you see all these pictures on TV of, you know, places that have been decimated by tsunamis and things like that. So we kind of lived through that.
and it was uh, it's really unfortunate. A lot of a lot of the local community around that area they they didn't make it. They lost their lives because the Indonesians traditionally aren't good swimmers. They don't really they sort of fear the ocean. Um, but um, you know, thankfully, everyone that was in our squad in our team we all managed to get out of there after a couple of days they had to send a boat from bali to all the way to java to come and get us so and uh basically spent the next couple of months just recovering from you know various infections and whatever else but yeah it was a another one of those moments where you where you kind of um you feel very vulnerable and fragile compared to mother nature i'm sure there's a moment there where it just flips in an instant from paradise you're on a surf camp yeah in indonesia to just hell and it's so scary to think that if you didn't have the experience you had with the water and the waves and what to do in that sense of panic because that's what it is essentially it's whether you can beat the panic because if you're flailing around you're going to use up all your energy and yeah it's scary to think that if you didn't have that experience where well if you'd still be here yeah it's that you know the fight or flight response and um, the fight kicked in then wasn't ready. So it was definitely a moment where I didn't think it was going to end well. You know, I went, that, that first moment when I was underwater and you click in, you know, being a surfer and being around the, the water, you kind of put two and two together pretty quick. And I was like, wow, this is how it's going to, is going to have end before it really even started. So um, yeah, I was thankful and lucky to get out of that one. Yeah. And thankfully it didn't end there and you went on and you carried your surfing career on and it's incredible that what you've been through hasn't deterred you at all and you've always kept that motivation your inner why of i'm going to achieve my greatness and in 2003 after eight years of wait you did achieve your lifelong dream didn't you yeah that was a big moment um it was it was my one and only um championship to a win so i I guess it's the equivalent of, um, you know, winning a, a major golf tournament or winning a grand slam in, in tennis. You know, that was, that was the moment. It was seven years into the, into my kind of 10 year campaign on the world tour. It was at a place called lower trestles in California. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just so good to finally get that major win that I'd wanted to get because I'd, you know, I'd been told by all my friends and my peers and so many people around me, um, you know, you've, you've got the potential to win. You just, something's not quite there. So um, that day I found it and it was the same feeling I had at um, in Hawaii all those years ago where uh, you're just in the moment on that day and uh and you find that winning feeling and as a professional sportsman it's so hard to find it and you know all these things need to happen at the right moment confidence level levels need to be there your equipment needs to be right your fitness needs to be right um your kind of mental awareness needs to be right and um you know looking back now i go oh, god it should have been so much easier i should have won so many more events but you know, when you're living it, when you're in there, it's, it's, it's so much harder because you're putting all that pressure and stuff on yourself as well. But yeah, no, that day was, that day was a special day. Yeah. Congratulations. Was it Thanks, the same mindset in terms of when you're in Hawaii, you said, right, 
I've got nothing to lose here. Focus on myself and you don't know what's going to happen. You're not the favourite. There's two people that have absolutely dominated your sport. Focus on yourself. Let everything fall in line and see what happens. Did that happen again? It did. And I was guilty of, of probably putting too much pressure on myself mixed with not enough confidence in what I was doing and not enough confidence in my ability to be the best. It's funny, on that day in California, I went back to that same mantra of every time I touched the water for every single heat, I went, I've got nothing to lose here. Like you said, I wasn't the favorite. I was the underdog still all the way to the final. And it was funny, they had one of the kind of uh, the more established season kind of legends of the tour commentating. And I remember going back and watching the show after and he was going, there's no way Rich is going to win this. There's no way, you know, Taj Burrow, who I had in the final, he's going to, he's going to, you know, slaughter Rich in this thing. And I just remember thinking I was, you know, I took all that pressure off myself, just focused on what I was doing every single wave every single turn, every single manoeuvre, again, just coming back. I was in that moment and uh, it felt so good. I'm sure it did. Were you grateful that you were the underdog? Do you think had it been the other way around and you were the favourite, you wouldn't have been able to keep your mantra of there's no pressure, just do what I can? So there's a lot more kind of intuitiveness that happens for, in this sport. And it's the ones that can read the ocean the best. And it's the ones that can connect that, that, that innate ability and connect it with your raw ability on a surfboard. They're the ones that are the greats and they're the ones that keep ex succeeding all the time. So, um, you know, I keep coming back to sort of Kelly Slater and the greats of our sport, Tom Curran's, Mark Richards, those guys passed. Uh, and more so now, you know, the Mick Fannings of the world, Gabriel Medina, guys like that. You know, John John Florence, they, they, these guys, are, are, they're freaks in the ocean. They can anticipate things that are going to happen. And that's when you're really in tune. Yeah, that mentality, you just stressed it there as a surfer. I talk to so many athletes and we always come to the same conclusion that no matter how physically demanding your sport is, and surfing's up there, it's one of the most extreme sports and it's so physically demanding. But all sports at elite level are practically 50% physical, 50% mental. And it's those that can hack the mentality that are really, really elite. Because so many people, think of the earth, there's 7 billion people on this earth. A lot of those people have the physical traits that would be needed for a world pro surfer. But having, having that mentality and that toughness and that gratitude is what really separates the good from the great. I couldn't agree with more. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're just saying there. And, um, you know, in a way, I, I feel like, um, you know, what I learned on the tour uh, and having that kind of mental aptitude and that mental strength and the resilience, everything that I went through on the tour was... Um, going into the toolbox for what I needed to deal with later. There's no doubt about it. And I, and I don't know whether if I had just 
being a regular guy with a regular job and then this whole cancer thing and all the other challenges that I had in life. I don't know whether I would have been able to cope with them as well as I did if I hadn't, if I hadn't, you know, developed the tools that I did by being a sportsman. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say that had you not gone through this journey and this career where you have to have such mental toughness, the fact that you've been through all this adversity and these massive moments in your life, as you said, yeah, would you be ready? And, and the fact that you don't know is, it's a scary thing, isn't it? And thankfully, through all your experiences, you did. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're all shaped as humans and we all, uh, again, we go through challenges and it's, and it's how, you, how you deal with it. I, never, I, I very rarely or never go into panic mode. I've developed this ability to, to just stay calm, to scope what the situation is, to approach it practically. Um, and it's not because I don't have empathy and I may not show a lot of emotion at that particular time, but I feel like I, because I'm acknowledging what's going on and I'm acknowledging the emotions that are happening around that situation, that I'm able to be calm and, and react to it. No, definitely. And it's almost like a superpower, the fact that you can remove yourself from the situation, not remove yourself from the situation, but remove yourself from the panic and stay calm because during the shark attack, you managed to do that. You managed to keep your eye on the shark and, and that's why you're still here. During the tsunami, you managed to turn that panic off and get your head above water and regather yourselves and during all the pressure of tournaments and competitions you managed to take that panic away i'm the underdog here focus on myself and you'll never know what will happen and mm. your mindset there is just done you absolute wonders and especially with, with the cancer thing just being able to take all of those raw emotions and just think you know what it could be worse and that ultimately probably what got you through it yeah no doubt about it um i was actually diagnosed with cancer again just a couple of years ago and uh i had to draw on all those feelings and all those um tools again um because i you know i didn't think i was going to have to face it again um but i did and uh it was um it was just through a, a routine blood test um which you know, I obviously have to go through uh, basically till till the day I die. I'll be kind of always on on watch or on alert for things that are going on in my body, and that's one thing that that uh, having all the experiences that I've had, you you do become really in tune with your own body. And if something doesn't feel right or if something's a bit off, you, you you're often aware to it. So anyway, I was having a, a routine blood test and and um, my prostate levels were actually a little bit elevated. So um, we got it checked out and I ended up, um, they ended up finding that I had the very sort of early stages of um, prostate cancer. So, uh, and I was quite young, I was 47, I think at the time. So um, I was quite young to be, to be diagnosed with prostate cancer. So, um, you know, I, I, that wasn't even on my radar 
but um, you know, I had to I had to jump into that a couple of years ago and and uh, ended up having my prostate removed and and uh, touch wood, it's been sort of pretty smooth sailing since then. So sorry to hear that you have been through so much, but yeah, I mean you're creating your legacy now and you're motivating others to get into the extreme sport of surfing. So yeah, you're, you're certainly creating a, a great legacy. The first time that you did have the cancer, you were saying that you just had a few aches in your hips at the start and it's natural for surfers and knowing you and your mindset, you would have maybe put it to bed. Let's not panic. Let's just do what I can day by day. And at some point you said that, you just had to get it checked out. It was unbearable pain. Yeah, and um, yeah. Funnily enough, I was I was back up in Indonesia on a on a uh, on a boat trip. We were doing another film project for for one of the sponsors I had, and we'd been surfing like nonstop. It was it was pretty. They were big physical days. A lot of six hours in the water, you know, surfing surfing at uh, at full steam. So uh, towards the end of that trip, I was my my right hip was just on fire I was in so much pain and so when I uh, when I came back from that trip I was like I, I got to get this checked out so uh, I went and um, I went and had an x-ray and then the x-ray showed up uh, showed up something in the bone the bone didn't look right uh, it had this sort of um, kind of like a webbish sort of like a honeycomb type of appearance to it uh, and this was right in the in the sort of femoral head and um, I was like, uh, the the one of my chiropractors at the time was like, yeah, that doesn't look right. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to go down the rabbit hole here. So um, that started this long chain of of tests, uh, you know, bone scans, CTs, MRIs, all sorts of stuff, and uh, got to the point where um, you know I had this bone scan, and I was I was in one of those uh, you know big machines that uh, that that sort of you go through the little tunnel. And it had a screen up next to it. And I remember watching as I was, um, that, that injected me with this dye, uh, like a radioactive dye, that when you go through the machine, highlights any kind of cancer activity, or any, any uh, tumor activity in your body. And I just remember coming out of the, the, the tube and I looked at the screen and my hip was lit up like a light bulb. And I just, I remember at that moment, just thinking to myself, this is not good. This is going to be, I got, I got something to deal with here. And then uh, from that point, I, I was sent to a specialist and he basically said to me, look, uh, I remember I was sitting in his office and I was, I was scheduled to leave, I think the next day to go to Hawaii to compete in the next couple of events. And uh, I remember sitting in his office and he was looking at all the different scans, the results of everything. And he said to me, he goes, so what do you do? And I said, oh, well, I'm pro surfer. I'm about to go and compete and blah, blah, blah. He goes, well, what else can you do? And I said, well, what do you mean? What else can I do? He goes, well, I don't know how long you're going to be a pro surfer for. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, what we're looking at here is some form of tumor in your bone, which, which could be any number of things. But if I had to wager a guess, you know, it's, it's more than likely it's going to be, you know, a tumor, it's probably going to be a malignant tumor. 
And then he went into his drawer and he started to pull out all these big pieces of like prosthetic hips and stuff and started going, we'll probably take your bone out. We'll need to do this and we'll start, you know, we can rebuild your hip. And I'm just going, I'm just going, what are you talking about? Like at that point, I'm just going, hang on a minute. I'm at the height of my career. What's going on here? The tour, one of the tour doctors said, let's go to, let's get a second opinion, come to LA and we'll, we'll see one of the cancer specialists in LA and, and get his opinion before, before we do anything. So um, we, went to, uh, we went to LA, went home for a couple of days, went back to California. And then um, we went into LA and I saw one of the specialists up there and he basically said exactly the same thing as a specialist in Australia. He goes, we're gonna have to do a biopsy, but I hate to tell you this man, but it's, it looks like you're gonna be facing a, an operation and we're gonna have to you know, rebuild your hip and whatever. And uh, he actually offered to do the biopsy pretty much the next day. So I went in just so scared, just thinking, you know, what's gonna happen here? My, is my career over? I, I didn't know, there was so much uncertainty around my life at that point. And uh, up to that point, everything had been perfectly planned. And all of a sudden there was no plan, mm. uh, which, was, which was pretty hard for me because I, you know, I'm the type of person who does like to have things organized, you know? Um, so I did the biopsy seven days later, I got the call and it was the doctor saying, look, we've, we've sent your results off. We've double checked it and it's come back positive for a malignant bone cancer called clear cell chondrosarcoma. So really rare, um, but certainly deadly if left in the body and nothing done with it. So, um, the decision was made to take uh all of the top basically the top third top half of my femur out a lot of the surrounding muscle tissue and they had to rebuild the, the whole hip so um you know everything happened so fast it was it was two weeks from two weeks from the biopsy surgery and i was i was um you know i, I woke up and there was this huge big foam wedge in between my legs and my legs have been strapped together so that they wouldn't move um, because the, all the new parts, all the prosthetic had to adhere to the bone and I had to kind of stay immobilized for you know, a period of time. And um, that's, that's when the fight started. That's when I had to dig. That was the moment where I had to really dig deep and mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, all of a sudden it went from, oh man, my career to, oh man, my life, you know? Um, and the priority started to shift from focusing on just being a surfer and a pro surfer to, I just need to get my life back, you know? And that started a, a long road of recovery. Yeah, it's just so moving what you've been through and the fact that you're here today and you can talk about it and what it's done for you mentally is just brilliant and uh yeah no again very moving but when you spoke about the first surgeon the doctor sorry that you saw in australia and he said well what else can you do when you said you're a surfer it took me back to when you were in year 10 and you had your career day and your teachers went yeah but what else do you want to do yeah. and your answer still is, well, no, I'm Richie Lovett. I'm a surfer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not doing anything else. And you managed to get through that recovery 
how tough it must have been mentally and physically and that you still surf and you travel the world with your job now and yeah you don't surf to the level you did and you have to have that self-discipline but to be able to surf full stop after a completely replaced hip and battling that awful cancer is just incredible and, and so motivational yeah thanks mate um you know, it's, I've had periods over the last, you know, 16 odd years since I left the tour where I've, where I've had a year out of the water or I've had six months out of the water where I've, you know, had to have the hip redone or I've, um, you know, I've had a back operation or something else has happened that's kept me out of the water for an extended period of time. So, you know, I use, surfing's a motivator for me to, to get back there, to stay fit, to stay healthy, to, to keep going because I, when it's taken away from me and it's been taken away from me so many times, I just, I just want to, I'm just so thankful that I can go back to it. Um, so I had to find satisfaction in other things, but it's all, it's all revolved around surfing, you know, and, you know, I'm even to this day, I'm, I'm involved with surfing. I commentate on the world tour. Um, I make surfboards. Um, I work for a company that makes, um, arguably the best kind of hardware and equipment for surfing it's so nice that you've been able to adapt and although you have to discipline yourself you're still living your dream life and you're still surrounded by everything you love so that's just yeah. brilliant and you were voted for years the most underrated surfer on the world tour and now you're seen as one of the most respected professional surfers there's been and uh i can truly see why you're a great guy with a, a great story and a great mindset so uh yeah, I think many people can learn a lot from you. Thanks, Ollie. Appreciate it, mate. And to wrap up, which has been, yeah, once again, incredible, and I really appreciate your time and telling us your story. What tip would you give someone that's looking to achieve greatness? Uh, if you're looking to achieve greatness, uh, if you're looking to achieve greatness in sport, uh, it's going to be a different answer to whether you want to achieve greatness in life. If you want to achieve greatness in sport, don't leave anything on the table. Commit. Commit hard. Give everything to it. Um, don't leave any regrets behind um, because the day will come when that part of your life is over and you won't be able to achieve the things that you that you could have achieved You've, everyone's got a certain window where they can where they can reach their their peak in a sport um so you you've just got to be selfish and devote everything to it but to achieve greatness in life um that's a different story and for me, that's way more important um, because I look back at I look back at the career part of my life, the professional surfing part of my life, and to me, it's just a chapter now. It's just a, a little period in my life that I had, and it was amazing, and I loved it. But it doesn't it it really doesn't define who I am as a person. Um, you know, people know me for that but it, it doesn't define who I am. What defines who I am is how I behave um, and how I go through life and how I treat other people. 
uh, and how I make other people feel. So for me, greatness is, is, is again, coming back to your full potential and, um, and inspiring others with that potential, bringing happiness to other, other people through, um, through kindness, you know, through, um, through giving, through giving good energy, through giving positive energy, through giving love. Um, you know, to me, that's greatness. Nothing trumps that. That's just brilliant that you've given two definitions and that just sums up everything you've said in this podcast, that you have to give it your all, but you always have to look at the bigger picture because there's so much more that's going on. And if you have the ability to look at the bigger picture, you can keep your emotions in line, you can keep your mantras and you can stay true to yourself. And if you're doing all of those things, then uh, yeah, the sky's the limit. Rich, you've been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. And uh, I'm just so motivated talking to you. So um, no, I really appreciate that. I appreciate that on a personal standpoint. No worries, Ollie. It's been great to talk to you, mate. And um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you uh, allowing me this platform to, to talk to you and, and, uh, and share my story. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Richie once again for joining us from Australia. It's incredible to see how someone faced with so much adversity is able to stay strong and overcome the mental and physical hurdles that try to stop him from achieving greatness. In the final part of hurdles, we will speak to Marcus Pletz. Marcus is an ultra runner who has covered 1,418 competitive kilometres in his career, which is just insane. Marcus talks about his insane ability to manipulate his emotions, allowing him to achieve greatness. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to follow at Hurdles Podcast.